podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a young up-and-comer in the chess world joining us this week. I'm uh, pretty friendly with him from our time in Pittsburgh. He is 22 years old. He is about 2100 USCF. Um, he is fresh out of college and has recently been, been hired as Chess.com's lead solution architect. I look forward to finding out what that is in a minute. Um, he also works on he works on the Pro Chess League for Chess.com, the Fisher Random World Championship. We'll get into all that, all that stuff. He also founded a popular chess site called Chess Summit, which you may have heard referenced in previous episodes of Perpetual Chess. Uh, he makes videos for ChessOpeningsExplained.com. And now here he is joining us, Isaac Steinkamp. How are you Isaac doing well thank you so much for having me here my pleasure so freshly minted chess.com employee congratulations Isaac thank you yeah it's been it's been a pretty crazy ride to get to this point but I'm really glad that I'm here I'm really enthusiastic to be working with the the members who are on my team and you know really excited to see what we have to you know go forward with this year wow you've already got the corporate speak down and everything Um, so Isaac and I go back a little bit. Um, sure. we, uh, we lived in Pittsburgh at the same time and Isaac, uh, helped me with one of my chess clubs. And of course we would see each other around in chess circles aside from that. Um, and I remember when you told me you were going to do your first streaming for chess.com and it, it feels like a long time ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. Was it Isaac? Yeah. I mean, looking back, I think that was mid 2018 maybe a little bit later um but it's definitely felt like it's been a really long time uh, admittedly i've never tried to go for partner status on twitch it's always just been something that you know when i was in college i wanted to do it once a week to kind of keep connected with all my followers from chess summit um and now that you know i'm moved to washington dc i've kind of used it as a way to kind of fine-tune uh, my overall streaming skills and my production skills and that way i can elevate those for uh my my job at chess.com Yes, which begs the question. So what what does a lead solution architect do? So currently I'm working as a lead solutions architect for chess.com, which means I basically look through all of the stats and you know study our events and compare them to successful models of past either chess events or esports events to basically decide what are the next steps that chess.com needs to take to make sure that those events are running smoothly and that they're going to meet the level of production that we would expect for an event of that caliber and what kind of events we should con- continue to pursue in the future. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like interesting work, but so you, you've been doing some work for them. I think it it seems like observing from a distance sort of in a slowly but steadily increasing capacity. Um, So did you apply specifically for this position or was it more like they liked you and decided to hire you and tried to find an appropriate role for you sort of thing? So I got kind of lucky that we had a mutual match Uh, back in December. I kind of had this moment where I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, which I guess is typical for most college students who are seniors and about to graduate. I had had a bunch of internships in the past that, you know, I, I thought that, you know, were really good working experiences for me. And I gained a lot of skills, but I just didn't feel like it was a good fit for me professionally. Um, and I always knew that, you know, working in chess, right, uh, was always something that I wanted to explore, but never really had the opportunity to do. And I felt that if I didn't 
you know, take the next step to at least talk to people at chess.com to see if I would be a good fit, uh, I'd be kicking myself in five years, um, you know, if I, if I just never took that shot. So I talked to a couple of my friends at chess.com. Uh, I actually wound up talking with Danny Wrench at that point, you know, a couple of days later. And, you know, we agreed that, you know, back in January or so, I would start working, you know, on, on a couple of projects to just kind of see what the workflow was like at chess.com and see if it was a good match. Uh, and I've been working for them ever since. Great. And at what point did you know that this would be a full-time gig? So, I mean, obviously when I, I started, I mean, I didn't think that, you know, I was going to be seriously considered for a position at chess.com. Admittedly, when I was in high school, I thought that all of the guys at chess.com got in a room and laughed at Sam Copeland because he was the weakest chess player. And so if he's 2200 and I'm like 202100, I guess I'm not a good fit, right? And so I kind of just erased this from my radar for most of my uh, college years. But you know, in reality, it's not true. Chess.com has a lot of employees of a lot of different rating sets. And so, um, you know, talking to the, you know, the people who, you know, work at chess.com and working with people like Danny and Nick Barton uh, and Sam Copeland and Aaron Graham, uh, I really got a good feel for what it was like to work at chess.com. And at first I was, I, I told myself like, this is this is the opportunity that you want. This is you know go go for it and you know go from there. And it was a really compelling argument that this was the website that basically kind of helped me restructure my passion for chess back in high school. And now the guy who basically his name is associated with that website is calling me on my cell phone saying, "Hey, we want you to be a part of our team." And you know I made sure I took the time that both emotionally and professionally this was the best decision for me. And you know I'm really glad that I'm here today. So now that you're getting settled in at chess.com, Isaac, what are you discovering your day-to-day workflow is like? So a lot of my workflow is based around studying what, you know, what happens in the existing market, both within the chess industry and outside of the chess industry, specifically esports, and modeling the kind of decisions that we make with our, with our own events to what happens with you know, other you know, successful chess events, but also successful esports events in a way that we can continue building the best uh, events there are on the internet for online chess. Um, so, you know, a lot of the time that I, you know, I spend working, I'm, you know, I'm looking at what does Overwatch do to make their league successful. I look at the grassroots movements for different esports leagues, and I look to see what are we doing at chess.com that's different from them, and how is it that chess being a unique game in and of itself um, gives, how does that give us advantages that maybe these other esports don't, and how do we leverage that to create a better product? So basically, you're sitting around watching Twitch of video uh, games. I mean, that's a little bit unfair. I mean, I do a lot of work, you know, in spreadsheets and working with stats and, you know, evaluating to see, you know, where do the numbers match up and, you know, what are our overall retention rates and, you know, what are the next steps to make our, you know, make this event that we had that was great. How do we make it excellent? How do we make it, you know, the, the event that everyone wants to circle on their calendar and come back and watch next year? Gotcha. No, I was mainly kidding, of course, of course. <laughs> but um. I, so you were a political science and math major, is that right, at, at University of Pittsburgh? So I finished last month with a major in economics and a minor in economics, political science. Sorry. Okay. Um, I think when I was working with you, I actually had the, I was working towards my major in math, but around that time, I actually decided to make the switch over to economics. Um, and so I actually spent a lot of my collegiate career thinking that I was going to actually go work for a political party or go work for government and you know try to create you know change and bureaucracy. And I quickly found that uh, you know, as inspired as I was to go try to do that work, maybe the the amount of you know dynamic workflow that I was expecting just wasn't there in bureaucracy, which I guess I should have realized from the start. Um, and so that got me looking at what you know what else I was interested in, and you know, it pointed me in the direction of chess.com. Yeah, chess 
politics are bad enough without even going into actual regular politics. So right. I think it's it's a wise decision and it's good that you, you learned it young. Um, so are you like, uh, so you mentioned you're looking at statistics. Um, do you have like a pro? have you learned some programs, like some of the popular statistics programs to help you um, with this work? So, you know, I, I learned a lot from my econometrics class that I took at the University of Pittsburgh and, you know, taking, you know, for example, a program like Stata and then, you know, taking a look at the numbers and trying to figure out, like, what are, what are our projections, where do we, you know, move forward and what's our next step. But, I mean, I'll, honestly, a lot of this, you know, as much as, it's, as, it, as, much of it, as it is numbers-based, the other part, is it, part of it is actually, like, community development. Esports is still a relatively new industry compared to, you know, some of the other more traditional uh, sports, you know, industries. And so... Part of part of what I do is also take the lessons from what other esports have done, uh, as well as you know what have other chess organizers have done that have been successful, and how do we move towards that? Uh, and obviously, there's only so much data there, and so it's, you know that's where you know, that's where the complexity of my day to day job you know lies. Okay, now I know you're just getting your feet wet, and I don't know to what extent any um, insights that you generate would be pro- proprietary, excuse me, to chess.com, but can you think of any um, early examples of, uh, of practices that you would like to mimic, that you would like to bring to chess.com, whether it be from another chess production or from uh, an eSport? So one thing that we've already started to do that's actually in action right now is the work that we're doing towards the Pro Chess League qualifiers. One of the things that I realized that maybe the Pro Chess League wasn't as successful doing compared to other esports leagues was there wasn't really an effective grassroots movement, meaning that players in like that, you know, 1,000 to 1,700 range, which constitutes most of like our viewership on, you know, any given online chess event, they didn't feel connected to these Pro Chess League teams because even though, you know, realistically, they might be able to train and become a board for there was a detachment. And so one thing that we've already started to do for the Pro Chess League qualifiers and for the Pro Chess League regular season in 2020 is starting to push teams in the right direction of, you know, what does it take to build a grassroots movement? What kind of social media presence does each individual team need to have? So in that way, we can create a better Pro Chess League and a better viewing experience for all of our viewers who enjoy the Pro Chess League. Uh, and so honestly, a lot of that's been applying what I learned from managing the Pittsburgh Pong Grabbers and you're taking what worked and didn't work uh, to you know a much broader, simpler scale. Uh, but then, other that uh, the other part of that obviously is also taking a look at what actually what are the actual stats from the Pro Chess League season and what works uh, versus my assumptions that I had when I was working for the Pong Grabbers. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be fun to see all that data. But I and I remember that you worked hard on on the Pong Grabbers in in all respects, but especially with the social media stuff. So, mm-hmm. w- what what did you learn from that experience? So I think. The number one thing that I learned from working for the Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers, and I think this was a very helpful skill for me, not just for my specific job that I have now, but just as a professional skill, it's very easy to feel that you need to be very detail-oriented on everything when you are you are the face of the product or when you are running this you're running all of the behind the scenes uh, part of the part of like the team or the you know the project. It's very easy to feel like everything needs to be perfect. Uh, in reality, if you spend that much time on everything, you have time for nothing else, right? Uh, and with the Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers, I found that there were certain aspects of what we were doing that I think were really beneficial for the team. And then there were some areas that we added on in 2019 that I think were detractors from the overall team product that we would have liked to have had. And so what I've been doing is with these teams and training them how to become a more sex- successful Pro Chess League team is basically minimizing the mistakes that I made and you know getting them to focus specifically on the areas that we know that worked. Uh, and, you know, I have that unique experience both from being a manager in the Pro Chess League, but also, you know, working for Chess.com. 
So what worked? Um, well, obviously, social media is the most visible thing. And, you know, anybody who watches the Protest League knows that, you know, for the past two years, Pittsburgh Pond Grabbers have had a pretty strong game on Twitter. Um, but, you know, things that haven't worked as much, uh, you know, Discord, for example, that that's kind of taken a backseat. Um, whereas, you know, 2019, a lot of Protest League teams thought that that was, you know, something that needed a lot of attention when in reality that that time was better spent creating tournaments for, you know, the Protest League teams, fans and you know, getting them motivated about playing. And the other thing, of course, is streaming and, you know, spending as much time as you can on a team channel, you know, helping create that team brand. That's really important in terms of grassroots development. Um, that probably should have happened last year, specific to Pittsburgh, but for many other teams as well. Gotcha. And what else, what other changes are in the pipeline for the Pro Chess League? Um, what what else is have you been working on in, in that regard? So... Obviously, the most important thing for the Protest League is to make sure that on top of having a strong grassroots movement, that the league continues to be competitive and, you know, that all of the players are, you know, wanting to show up every week and, you know, play their best chess. And so, you know, already this year with the qualifiers, you know, Greg and I have been working together to build uh, basically a tournament that lasts four weeks where the top teams will move through. Whereas in the past, you know, a team could have a really good, you know, Sunday or Saturday and find their way into the Pro Chess League when maybe the best team, you just had an off day. With the Pro Chess League qualifiers already lasting four weeks, it guarantees that the teams that are going through in the qualifiers are likely already going to be playoff contenders going into 2020. And I would go so far to say that there is no team in the current Pro Chess League that's going to repeat next year that is safe from relegation. Hmm. Um, and the qualifiers are coming up, right? Oh, and by the way, I should clarify, I think most people know, but... Uh, you, when you say Greg, you're referring to Commissioner and I am Greg Shahadi, who of course has been on the show talking about Pro Chess League, and I'm sure will be again someday. But you have the quali- to, But to get back to my question, you have the qualifiers coming up, right? Right. So the first qualifier starts on September 26th, and we have a couple dates selected after that in October. So uh, definitely be on the lookout for that. I believe they're going to be on Saturdays uh, mostly, and. You know, that's going to mean that teams are going to send their best players. So even if not all of the teams will make it to the Pro Chess League, it's going to feel like a Pro Chess League event in a way that it's never had before. Okay, and do you have, is it public knowledge yet who's trying to qualify? So unlike last year where we released all of the teams basically the week before the start of the qualifiers, uh, we've kind of released qualifier teams as the Pro Chess League Summer Series, which is currently ongoing, has progressed. Uh, with the the promise to continue releasing teams as they've met the criteria that they need to get in to the the protested qualifiers. So currently the confirmed teams that will be competing in the upcoming qualifiers are the Reykjavik Puffins, Barcelona Raptors, Pittsburgh Pongrabbers, and the Sao Paulo Capybaros. But there are many more teams that are, you know, currently still trying to pass off through every single one of the, you know, the minimum requirements to get into the uh to the protest league qualifiers. It's great that you have so many teams lining up to get in and, you know, some already with like uh, Reykjavik in particular, uh, with their famous Puffins clip, you know they already have a a rich, rich sort of history in um, in in the Pro Chess League. Right, and you know they actually got to play in the Pro Chess League Summer Series. You know that's currently, as I mentioned, ongoing, uh, and they got to play a couple of weeks ago, and they actually earned their first ever Pro Chess League playoff spot uh, in the Summer Series. They wound up losing to the Minnesota Blizzard, but. Uh, it just goes to show how these teams are working really hard already to, you know, continue improving, get ready for the Pro Chess League season, and and go from there. Yeah, and Isaac, I I have to cop to the fact that I haven't been following the summer series 
um, all that closely. So for for me and for anyone else who maybe um, doesn't know how it fits in with the with the overall framework of the Pro Chess League, could you could you um, explain it a little bit? So the Pro Chess League Summer Series is a continuation of the 2019 Pro Chess Leagues, where fans actually get an opportunity to play in the Pro Chess League and change the outcomes of how their teams do throughout the season. And so we've seen a lot of traditional teams that have you know usually done well in the Pro Chess League, like uh, Baden-Baden, for example, and even St. Louis to an extent in the group stage, struggle to try to move on to the next you know the next stage of the tournament because you know fans are really passionate about the teams that they support. You know teams that did really well, Minnesota, Montreal. Um, you know, they moved on to the playoffs. And so now that we're into the playoffs, it's, you know, going back to the traditional four versus four format. We've got championship weekend, which this will be released obviously after uh, championship weekend uh, is uh, finished on August 30th and August 31st. But there's already a lot of teams that are sending, you know, quite a strong, quite a lot of strong players. And it's going to be a really exciting uh, weekend for everyone. Okay. And what, what happens for the winners? So for the winners, I mean, this will be like a separate Pro Chess League title. This will be like the Pro Chess League Summer Series title. And so currently St. Louis is trying to become the first ever Pro Chess League double champion. But obviously with this being such a big event and with Twitch helping, you know, provide, you know, a, a pretty substantial prize fund, this is actually a really great springboard for these teams that have worked really hard during the 2019 Pro Chess League season to begin funding their teams for the 2020 season. So teams that do well and get to the playoffs and you know maybe they don't win the whole thing, but they get to the semifinals, that might buy them a free agent for the duration of the season. And you know even if you aren't following the summer series, everyone knows that a free agent in the Pro Chess League can make or break your season. So this is a you know this is the opportunity that teams are you know really looking forward to to be able to become, you know, a next level program in 2020. Oh, so yeah. It, and it's an additional opportunity for funding. I know that, I mean, I, you know, I assume this isn't, <laughs> this isn't a uh, secret information, but I know that uh, fundraising for teams can have some challenges. I know that you encountered um, some when you were managing the pawn grabbers. So mm-hmm. is, is that uh, something that is going to sort of fall under your umbrella to work on fundraising generally for individual teams? And do you guys have like new initiatives in, in mind for that? So one of the things that we're doing behind the scenes is we're we're making stats more accessible for teams that are, you know, actually trying to reach, you know, reach out to local sponsors, which is, you know, for those programs, you know, that's their best opportunity to get sponsored is at the local level. And so, you know, we have talked to Pro Chess League teams that are interested in getting their own sponsors and we provide them, uh, you know, with, you know, the stats and figures that they need in a way that we've never done before. Uh, and so I already know, like, for example, the San Diego Surfers already have a sponsor for the 2020 season. They haven't even made it through the qualifiers yet. Uh, and I know that there's some other teams in the qualifiers as well that, that are already taking that next step and finding local sponsors. And so making information accessible and, you know, making sure that the level of communication is, you know, pretty consistent throughout the offseason has given these managers an opportunity to make their make their teams more powerful with the support of local sponsors. So what would be an example of some stats that, that you would provide? Um, well, obviously, the number one things that local sponsors are always looking for, they're going to be number of impressions, both on social media and on Twitch, the kinds of placements that, you know, the the company logo, for example, would get on stream. Uh, is it going to be visible? How many fans are going to see it? What's the click through rate? Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that are really boring to look at on spreadsheets, but are going to get the people in the room who are you know considering on making that investment uh, really excited. And do you have demographics on like where the actual people watching are? Because, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a pretty strong correlation between 
uh, say, people around Pittsburgh watching the pawn grabbers and stuff like that. But, I mean, the the chess world is strong enough. And, you know, when you have outsized sort of chess personalities, like, say, John Bartholomew for for Minnesota or, you know, the chess bras for Montreal, they're not just going to be pulling from their local markets. Um, so how does that work in terms of uh, trying to find um, sponsors? Are they going local or more national or just sort of on a, it varies on a case by case basis. I mean, it definitely varies on a case by case basis. There are teams in the pro chess league that are strong and don't, you know, don't need funding because either they already have it internally or their players have agreed to basically play for free. Um, you know, but we do provide support in the sense of providing all the literature that they need, educating them on the numbers that they need to know. Um, at the end of the day, it makes for a smarter pro chess league. And, you know, we do have the regional data uh, that the managers need to be able to take that next step. Uh, but the one big thing that, you know, the, the big message that we sent to all the teams this year, you know, specifically starting with the qualifiers is that with the level of accountability increasing, it's going to make for a better league and a better product. Cool. Well, I look forward to it. Um, it sounds like fun work, to be honest. I mean, it sounds like uh, it wouldn't be that repetitive and you, you have your your hands in enough things that, that it, it wouldn't, you know... Um, a lot of uh, room for for research and and affecting change. Definitely, and you know, one of the things I love about my job right now is every day I get offered a new challenge, and it might be completely different than what I you know considered the previous day. But that gives me an opportunity both to grow, but also to work with people from around the world. Uh, yeah. Okay. And Isaac, last pro chess league question. Um, this one's the, the the important one. Is uh, is Greg Shahadi technically your boss? I mean, I don't. You know, I, I think the way that we see our working relationship is that, you know, we try to bounce ideas off of each other. And uh, I think we would both agree that we think very differently in terms of what the protest league needs to grow. But when we come together and we find an idea that we both like, it's 100 percent always going to be a great idea. And so we've already identified some rules, which I'm not allowed to release yet, um, that are going to improve the protest league season for the 2020 season and for the qualifiers um, that I don't think would have been possible uh, you know, had we had both not basically gone back and forth and debated, uh, you know, certain aspects of the pro chess league. Okay. But he's not making you go get him donuts or anything. No, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, good. No, I mean, and what would be an example of, can you share anything where you guys disagree? I mean, Greg, obviously he's been on the show a few times, um, quite outspoken about his general sort of chess promotion philosophy. Are you, does yours broadly fall in line and is it, are your disagreements more granular um, or do you um, disagree on like stuff like trying to limit draws and you know um, you know making things as a you know Greg is I would say very sort of um, anti-traditional in terms of his approach to promoting chess. Do you share that philosophy? I think him and I are a little bit different in that vein, and I think the one thing that's important is that we both love the Pro Chess League and we both want to see continue to succeed um, going into 2020 and beyond. He's more of a micro guy. Uh, I mean, ra- rather, he's more of a macro guy. Uh, he, he thinks big picture. He thinks what do the players want? What do the fans want? Uh, and I'm more micro. I, I, you know, I, I focus on, well, if we implement this change, well, this is what that would mean if this we were to apply it back on the 2018-2019 season. Um, the great thing about now having run this league for three years is that Greg has kind of led uh, created the path work that we can work from. We now have data that we can go back and apply, you know, changes to before we actually implement them in the 2020 season. Um, I can't really give specific examples of where we've disagreed because they've ultimately led to honestly amazing rules that we want to release at a later date. But 
Um, you know, we have hotly debated certain aspects of the protest league, and I think it's made you know the protest league a better product already in the off season. Okay, maybe next time I get Greg on once the you know when the when the next season is about to launch and um, and the changes have been uh, announced, maybe he can uh, can take us back a little bit. We'll see. Um, so w- one more topic on chess.com, Isaac, um, the, the Fisher Random World Championship is, is ongoing. So what's, what's your role uh, in that? So I worked mostly on the non-titled qualifiers phase of that event. Of course, in doing so, it made me learn all of the different phases of how the Fisher Random uh, World Championship works, basically. Um, for maybe your listeners who aren't familiar with the event or you know, not sure what Fisher Random is. Fisher Random, of course, is the variant of chess where all of the pieces of the back rank are shuffled. And this event is the first attempt to do a serious world championship where anybody in the world can actually participate in this event, uh, regardless of if you're titled, if you're not titled, you know, if you're an elite grandmaster, it's accessible to everyone. It's the first time that that's ever been attempted, you know, using an online platform for a world championship. And so uh, the tournament started with a non-titled phase and moved on to a titled phase. We're currently in the knockouts where... Uh, players like Sergei Karyakin, Wesley So, Alexander Grishuk, they're all trying to get one of the eight spots to be able to progress uh, into the quarterfinals and then into the live semifinals and finals in Norway later this year. Yeah, it's it's. I'm a big fan of Fisher Random, as I've talked about before, and as I was telling you before we recorded, the, yesterday was the first time I got to watch any coverage, and I just caught a little bit of the this Fiddler and Grishuk playoff, and it's just... It's so much fun to see the. I mean, to me, I'm sure there's some people grumbling listening, but to me, to see all these fresh positions and see how these amazing chess players handle them. Absolutely. It's really refreshing. I actually had the opportunity to do commentary on the chess channel for one of the non-titled qualifiers. I believe it was like a 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern time shift. So it was a little bit on the late side. But, you know, one of the things I just loved doing commentary, you know, with that event was just how original, you know, the ideas have to be if you want to win. And, you know, coming up with these ideas and knowing where to put your pieces and you only have 10 minutes to do all of it uh, always makes for really compelling games. So we're already seeing in the knockout of significantly lower draw rate. I believe if I'm having the stat correct with the the knockout qualifier where Santosh Gudrathi beat Sergei Karyak and I believe there were only four draws in 40 games in that entire bracket, um, which, you know, says that there's still hope for chess, right? Yeah, it's quite promising. I mean, they are faster games, but still, any any time you're having a percentage even in that ballpark, that's uh, that's quite good, especially in light of as we record this. I mean, the Sinkfield Cup will be over by the time people hear this, but the narrative I don't think is going to change that there have been a whole lot of draws in this tournament. Um, right. I mean, this has definitely been, you know, of all of the major tournaments that I can think of, the one where there's just been an incredible number of draws. I think, like, there's the London Chess Classic from a few years ago that comes to mind. But I think all of us are collectively happy to put this one to bed and move on to the World Cup uh, in, you know, in just a couple of weeks, which is, I think, for most people, the most exciting event on the chess calendar uh, every two years. And so I'm going to be personally looking forward to that, and I think a lot of people are too. Yeah, a couple back in the day, you did a chess summit pool. Are you still going to be able to do that? Or are you um, now, is that uh, beyond, um, beyond your... Uh, time constraints or what's permitted under your work at chess.com so you know my working relationship with chess summit's always you know obviously amicable and you know i work with all of the guest authors on that but ultimately we're going through a uh, restructuring process where i have where i will no longer be the director of chess summit just because what my job demands at chess.com means that i can't spend time 
focusing on how to improve the quality of content or the website and its overall profile. Uh, and so that will ultimately, you know, be transferred. And, you know, there's a couple of guest authors that we're currently considering right now uh, to take that next step. So I believe that this year there will not be a knockout kind of bracket predictor challenge on Chess Summit. But, yeah, that was definitely one of the things that started my passion for the World Cup. Um, I remember the first time we did it, I believe, was back in 2015. And then we did it again in 2017 uh, in cooperation with Chessable. And um, it's, it's just a great event, and I love watching it. Yeah, I, I do too. And I think that someone out there, I mean, what you guys did was was a step at Chess Summit, I should say, was a step in the right direction uh, in terms of having like a pool. But the World Cup of chess in particular is something where there needs to be like a March Madness type pool where people put up actual money and some chess person needs to step up and make that happen. It doesn't need to be a lot of money, you know, like... I don't think that's the most important thing, but I just think it makes it it's so much more fun. Um, so September 9th to October 4th in Conti, Minsk, Russia. And for any listeners who don't know, this is sort of, it's, it's one of the rare elimination style chess tournaments. And there end up being lots of playoffs because if I recall correctly, it, the format is um, uh, two classical games and from there it goes to faster and faster time controls so the tension just mounts i mean it's um sometimes in these round robins uh at best the tension flatlines um if you know you have like a tie going to the last round but the top players aren't playing each other sort of thing um at worst you can have sort of an anticlimactic ending obviously every once in a while you have like the dream scenario where like the two top players are playing in the last round but basically you're guaranteed drama in the knockout and it's a large enough field where um where some lesser known players really get a chance to make a name for themselves and surprise some people so yeah, I'm excited for it. And if anyone listening to this wants to run a pool, uh, I'm happy to help promote it. Um, anyway, with, with that aside over, um, so Fisher Random, um, we've got, so Svidler moved on as we record it yesterday. Again, there, there might have been one or two more qualifications by the time this comes out, uh, mm-hmm. which will be eight days from now, Isaac. Um, but uh, I saw Feruja has already advanced. Um, you mentioned uh, Vidit Gujarati. Uh, who else do we know will be making an appearance um, in the later rounds? I believe we're still in the early stages of the overall knockout qualifiers. As I mentioned, I oversaw the non-titled qualifiers, so I know that there's more knockout qualifiers later in the week, but I know that Wesley So is playing on August 1st, uh, and I know that there are other bigger players playing after that, and obviously in the semifinals, uh, they'll be met with players like Magnus Carlsen and so forth. So um, we're definitely in that early stages still, but there's a lot of really strong players in all of the brackets, um, you know, leading up to the quarterfinals that will obviously, uh, you know, ha- be both intriguing and have a lot of drama. I think that, you know, that's what the fans really want to see. Cool. Yeah. And hopefully if this goes well, this will be something that will be a regular event because, I, you know, I'm, uh, as as we've mentioned, I found it, at the beginning, it can be hard to sort of uh, wrap one's head around, but I mean, as as it gets to a more condensed field, it's going to be super fun, I think. Um, okay, you ready for some chess improvement, Isaac? Let's do it. Okay, so Isaac, I mean, you've you've got the the pure love for chess, and you've been working hard on your game for a few years. So, what's uh, what's the current state of it? So, I'm currently 2,000 to 2,100 rated USCF. I don't really pay attention to FIDE, but I believe it's in the same. Uh, kind of rating area. My goal has always been to break national master, which 
I haven't gotten to quite yet, but I'm I'm hopeful because I've now moved from Pittsburgh to Washington D.C. Um, that I'll get you know different opponents, different atmosphere, and a, you know hopefully a different swing in results. But you know when it's come to me working on chess for the past couple of years, it's been pawn grabbers and chess summit and chess.com and chess openings explained and all these other projects first and then me second and now i'm kind of excited to move to this next phase of my life where i can you know i can guarantee that i have a set amount of time to actually work on my own chess uh, and try to improve from there yeah it's it's funny because all those things were kind of like your side hustles but you've managed to sort of roll them up into your main hustle so that now that now the actual playing chess can be your side hustle yeah i mean it's kind of funny how all of that turned out i mean I don't think I would have thought that, you know, with how chaotic things were when I was, you know, a senior or even a junior in college that, uh, you know, getting a job would make things easier in terms of having that time and flexibility to play chess. But it has and I'm really grateful for it. Yeah. And I mean, I know that you feel like you're you're you've plateaued a little bit, but I mean, generally, I was looking at your rating graph, um, not something I do that regularly, but in preparation (laughs) for this interview um, and yeah, I mean, it seems like you're you're on a good trajectory. I mean, you're you're only 22, um, and I do feel feel like when you get out of college, I mean, there's two periods in in life. Thinking back, when you're, I'm kind of, I was struck by how much free time I had. One was when I got to college, but you obviously, um, you found a way to fill those hours very quickly. But the other is when you get out of college and you get um, a real job, especially with um, your. I mean, on the one hand. I guess the fact that you, you're you're living with your girlfriend like that that in one sense could give you more free time and in another sense less depending on how mm-hmm. you look at it. But in any event, your time is going to be uh, pretty well budgeted for. Like you you'll have chess hours if you want them. Um, so how do you think you'll approach them? What 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 will be your first order of business in terms of uh, um, sharpening up your game? So right now I've already started kind of like preparing and, you know, I'm looking at potentially playing and, you know, a couple of rated games in early September. And so my focus has mainly just been to work on tactics and ignore openings completely, uh, which has been really refreshing. And, you know, I know that you know, there's a lot of, you know, titled players out there who've been saying that for years. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're stuck in Pittsburgh and you're playing the same 10 to 12 people over and over and again to try to get like three to four rating points. Uh, you have to book up on your openings. And if you take a couple months off or if you take even a couple weeks off, you know, the youngsters in Pittsburgh are going to beat you and take your rating points and, you know, go do bigger and better things without you. And so I'm really happy to be moving to that phase where now that I'm kind of going to be playing people who I either haven't played in years or I've never played before, um, I can focus on the things that will actually make me a stronger player, like tactics, uh, and continue to work on my end game and my middle game and, like, my overall, you know, positional sense of things. Um, you know, that's obviously, those are going to be the things that will help me jump over 2200 versus not. Okay. Yeah. And, and in a similar vein, Peter, Peter Newhall asked what you felt, um, is holding you back. He's, you know, um, been, been aware of you obviously. And thanks, thanks for the support and for the question, Peter. Um, so, I mean, basically he's wondering if, do we infer from what you're saying that you feel that tactics have what, what have been holding you back from, from making another push higher? I mean, I wouldn't put it entirely on my tactical sense. I mean, calculation has always been one of the weaker aspects of my chess because I've always loved like this positional Karpovian style of chess. Just, you know, have a set opening that you want to play and play the same plan every game and wear down everybody and go to an end game. Um, so because of that, my calculation has suffered. But I mean, part of it's I've also just been kind of unlucky, you know, demographically playing in Pittsburgh. If you want to go play in a tournament that's not in Pittsburgh, you're either going to Ohio or you're going to Philadelphia. And if you're a college student without a car, you're playing in Pittsburgh. 
Um, and, you know, the other thing that's always been kind of unfortunate for me is being a student and having all of these deadlines, both for my own personal projects and for school, you know, that dictates my schedule. And so there were a couple of times uh, in college where I'd either come back from Europe and I'd be playing phenomenal chess or, you know, even the, the last serious tournament that I played and I actually won first place um, where I just haven't been able to build off of that momentum because I had to put everything else aside to focus on something else. Um, and this will be the first time in four years where I haven't had to do that. And, you know, I think that that and, you know, the ability to actually work on the things that are most important to my chest, that could get me over the hurdle. But, you know, honestly, I'm just, I'm just excited about playing quality chess again and, you know, playing new opponents. And if I get the title in the next couple months, great. And if I have to wait a couple more years, even, um, that's also fine. I'm just happy to be playing, you know, somewhat seriously again. It sounds like you have such an emphasis on the title, but you don't strike me as someone who would, I mean, do you think if you reach the, you were, you're referring, of course, to, to the USCF master title, which requires a rating of 2,200. Um, do you think you would just hang it up then? I feel like you wouldn't even miss a beat. You'd be like on to the next challenge. I mean, but, it really it really depends, right? I mean, it, you know, it, your, your life circumstances are always going to change, you know, what it takes. And, you know, I've spent so much of my chess career focused on, you know, trying to get the national master title that I haven't really thought beyond that. And, and in a sense, that takes a little bit of pressure off of me and I can kind of relax and try out new things over the board. Um, so, you know, if I, if I do get the national master title, you know, obviously then the question becomes what next. Um, but, you know, I've just been focused on that for so long. That's obviously been my goal for studying chess summit. And so I, I guess the, the correct answer is I'm going to start there. And, you know, if I get, if I get the master title, then I'll figure out what's next. Okay. Yeah. So one step at a time. Um, but I mean, needing a hundred points, I mean, I don't know a ton about your game, but I feel like your rating has been, it's been closer to 2200. So it might be a matter of, I mean, it's gonna, I feel like it will probably take some time if only like, just cause you need a lot of points, even if your strength is not necessarily that far off when, when everything's clicking. Um, so we'll see. Um, and I know that in the past you've worked with uh, Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein. Uh, shout out to Eugene. Um, is is that still ongoing? Yeah. So I meet with uh, Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein on a on a weekly or you know biweekly basis, depending on what my upcoming tournament schedule is. And even through all these periods where I haven't been able to play tournament chess, we've used this as an opportunity to kind of pinpoint specific areas that I need to be working on that I can do in my spare time and not have to worry about keeping up to date, like theory, for example. So. Um, you know, that's been really helpful for me. It's always nice to know that like I'm working hardcore on these chess related projects, but then I get to you know, sit down for an hour, you know, a week with a really strong player and actually think about what are my issues in my current positions, not somebody else's, you know, issues in their position. And so, um, you know, that's definitely been helpful and I'm looking forward to applying what I've learned, uh, in, you know, upcoming tournaments. Cool. And what sort of, uh, what sort of things has Eugene highlighted? So, one of the things that we started to realize was when I was playing all of these youngsters in Pittsburgh, I'd be so focused on the prep that my overall sense of what's going on in the position and what the correct evaluation is and, you know, is this a practical decision? They were all kind of being thrown off and it was making me uncomfortable. And so what we did is we took a step back and we, you know, we, we went methodically through everything. It's like, okay, like, how is your calculation in these kind of positions? Is your method of going the, through the position correct? Okay, so that seems fine. Okay, so now in this position, are you evaluating these positions correctly? Are you being practical? Are you understanding that, you know, if you go into this endgame, you're still going to be better, or are you going to try to go for this flashy tactic that may or may not work? Uh, and so a lot of it's been psychological, uh, and then the other half of it obviously has been strategic and, you know, again, calculation-based. 
Yeah, I have to admit, I had the same, uh, a similar thought following on what you're saying, because even when you mentioned, I mean, and obviously I have a little bit of insight because I played a bit of chess when I lived in Pittsburgh, although not not super actively, but enough enough to realize what you're saying about how small the player pool is. Um, um, when you mentioned how you feel like you, you have to be prepared sort of to an artificial level because it's such a small pool of players, but I would push back against that a little bit. I mean, especially with white, I feel like you can just play anything. And even with black, I feel like with a a modicum of work, um, you can find ways to get out of the opening. And I mean, I I look at an, I can even put forth an example from Pittsburgh, Um, you know, former or possibly current, I'm not sure, pawn grabbers member, Gabe Pettish, uh, you know, who we're both friendly with, rated about Mm -hmm. 2,400 USCF. I mean, Gabe would be the first to tell you that he barely, like, he knows a little bit about a lot of openings, but he doesn't know a lot, basically, about any of them. And he just wings it every game. And meanwhile, he just, like, you know, cleans up. I mean, obviously, he's a super strong player, but that's sort of what I'm getting at is, like, it's it always, to me, so often, even even around our level, comes back to just improving one's overall chess play and not overemphasizing, not getting stuck in sort of what you call sort of the um, the mental block of uh, obsessing about how the opening's going to go. Yeah, I mean, Gabe is obviously the the counter example, right? But I mean, the one thing I will say about Gabe is, you know, in these rapid tournaments that Pittsburgh is known to have a lot of, he's very good at managing his time, you know, as you know his rating level would suggest, and so. If I could calculate his 2400 rating level, then openings wouldn't be a problem for me. But in the meantime, there, you know, when I was, you know, my senior year in Pittsburgh, there were three students of Alexander Shabalov who were booked to the gills, uh, who were exactly my rating, right? And so it was, you know, my job I felt to prove that I could either hold a block or prove an advantage with white in those games, and they were challenging. Um, but you know, when you focus a lot of time on opening prep, it you know it forces you to you know spend less time on other things. Yeah, I'm still I'm still suspicious, Isaac. I have to say, but I still feel like it wasn't the opening that often, like it, in the games. But but uh, in any event, I mean, we'll 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 get some more data. You know, getting mm-hmm. getting back to what you're saying from Chess.com because yeah, DC, you're especially DC being upwardly mobile, employed, um, able to able to navigate the Eastern Seaboard along with having a much wider array of players to play against to begin with, not to mention just the fact that it's a fresh group of players to play against. So I, I, it'll be interesting. I mean, I don't think, I certainly don't think you're going to have a lot of trouble gaining some rating points uh, given your new life situation, but, but yeah, I still, I still worry about you focusing too much on openings. Um, Okay. So favorite, what are your, what have, been some of your favorite chess resources that you've come across um, while you've been studying, Isaac? So there have been exactly three things that I think I can attribute to me growing the most since I've broken 2000. Uh, number one, uh, honestly, it's just going to chess base, you know, setting a position where basically it searches for any position without queens on the board and then searching for within that subset games that Magnus Carlsen has won and just studying those endgames. And on Chess Summit, I actually wrote a whole series about this called Endgame Essentials, which you guys can find uh, on chesssummit.com. But what that really helped me do was it kind of helped me plan out, you know, the endgame and try to really understand what is it that makes these GMs so great at endgame and what is it that I can learn from that. Um, I would say that on its own immediately got me about 50 points uh, on my rating just because I wasn't afraid to go into endgames anymore. And even if I knew the position was probably practically drawn, I was confident enough that I could just ground out my opponent. I could find these 
uh, weaknesses and be able to play on and you know convert and that's really important I think for anybody who's under 2100 to just have that you know confidence in these kind of positions where there's fewer pieces where a lot of young players for examples aren't uh, and so that was that was a huge uh, benefit for me the other thing that I think really helped was you know when I started preparing for the US Junior Open uh, my coach Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein recommended that I read the book 100 Chess Master Trade Secrets by Andrew Soltis and that really helped me identify what different plans are you know from a dynamic perspective it helped me kind of see that oh like if i you know put my knight on e5 in a certain pawn structure that's going to help me create you know various kinds of pressure or maybe i should be using my a or my h pawns a little bit more frequently to be able to you know create counterplay on either the king side or the queen side of the board and so that book really helped me kind of pull everything together and kind of understand what my position should be doing on a, on like a move by move basis and then the last resource that I think has really helped me has been the chess structures uh, grandmaster guide by Mauricio Flores Rios yeah, um, and I know that everyone recommends that book and you know well we all do for a reason right I mean yeah exactly it, it tells you all of the plans that you need to know in any given position it opens your mind up to you know consider all of these different you know ideas that you may have never previously considered and while it may not be the end-all be-all of all pawn structure guides it's definitely the right platform to get started with yeah, I think it's a. I thought I, I think it's an amazing book, and I, I agree with you. Everyone recommends it for a reason. I wasn't aware of the Soltis book somehow, though. So, how is it structured? Is it like specific position? So it's called um, Hundred Chess Master Trade Secrets. How um, is it specific positions? Is it like in this opening you should do this, or is it more sort of uh, general advice? It, it's pretty general, and the thing I like about it is you know it's literally formatted like number one birds bind, and it shows you like these different, you know, pawn structure configurations that can result in the knight, you know, getting from F3 to E5 or from C3 to D5. And how does that create pressure? And how does that coordinate with a fianchetto bishop? And we give like two or three case examples from completely different openings. So you know that you're not reading through somebody else's opening prep. You're reading through actual concrete uh, positional ideas. And then we'll move on to the next idea. And I'll give you various examples to break down from that. I think it's a really good book if you're, you know, if you've just broken 2000 and you don't really know how to improve. Even though I probably already knew like 50% of what the book covered, I found the other 50% of the book pretty instructive. And that in conjunction with the work I was doing in the end game was particularly valuable for me. Okay. And you mentioned that you're going to be emphasizing tactics a bit. What, how do you go about that? So one thing that I'm already fascinated by is Chess.com actually just released a new version of Puzzle Rush called Survival Mode, where it's not about trying to crank out as many in five minutes as possible. It's about basically doing in as many tactics as you can with no time limit and same three strikes you're out system. Uh, and so it really gives you the opportunity to go to a next level with some of the harder puzzles uh, in like that 30 to 45 range and beyond. And so that's actually already been really helpful for me. I've already started to see a, you know some results in my games uh, that have you know been quite encouraging. And then on top of that, you know it's you know going over like the top grandmaster games that you know, are interesting to me based on you know, the pawn structure or the dynamic idea. Obviously, at the top level, there's a lot of draws, and some of those are, let's just say, easier to get to than others. So I focus on the ones that are a little bit more challenging. But that's kind of been like my starting spot, and I go from there. And then on a weekly basis, I work with uh, Eugene Perlstein. He gives me a lot more complicated positions to kind of build off what I do during the week. Cool. I'm excited to check out that product, but now you've got me brainstorming names for it. I feel like survival mode is good, but... There's other possibilities. You could call it like old man puzzle rush or like, <laughs> or like instead of puzzle rush, call it puzzle saunter, 
you know, puzzle pu- pu- good. Puzzle stroll, you know, <laughs> something to uh, so something to underscore the fact that it gives hope to to those of us whose uh, whose brains don't fire quite as quickly as say like Hans Niemann or whoever you know that Dutch kid who's that I can't think of his name. The, Asper Schopen, I believe. Right? Asper Schopen, thank you. Uh, the kid who's getting over a hundred in puzzle rush. I mean, it, it's just mind boggling. So yeah, I need a new format. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's definitely been really helpful. And, you know, I think the co- the coaches of any chess player who actively plays online, they'll be the first to tell you that, you know, Puzzle Rush is great. But if you want to actually get better at Puzzle Rush, the way that you do that is you actually focus on solving tactics, not at trying to move your mouse faster. Yeah. Uh, and so this is that really good compromise of you can actually get better at your game while you can also try to boost your Puzzle Rush score, which I know that a lot of people do want to do. Yeah, and I probably... um. I mean, I know that at the top level, the, the the people we mentioned are actually memorizing some of the puzzles in order to to make their scores just the sickest. Although, right. I mean, that can't be too bad for your chess either. So, um, but it's interesting. Right. All right, Isaac, we have another question for you from a Patreon supporter. This one is from Jason Woolham, uh, who says he met you at the Chicago Open a few years ago. He thinks in 2017, and you had a chance to discuss something that stuck with him. He went over, you went over, oh, Sorry, a lot of pronouns here. He says he says he went over a game he played, which means you, um, and said it was said the game told a story. As there is a method, is there a method that can be used to try and remember moves or understand a position where it does tell that story? So one of the things that I, you know, focus on working with my students when I have had time to coach uh, is this idea of storyboarding your games. If you were to write like a comic strip or a story, you wouldn't just start from your introduction and go, right? You would actually develop your plot. You would develop the different points at which like the actions would occur to kind of bring the plot along. But the greater point is when you kind of zoom out, everything works together. So that way you have a central point. For a lot of under 2,000 chess players, one of the things I noticed they mess up on is that they'll get to a position where they have five or six ideas and maybe they'll choose the right plan. But then three moves later, they're focused on an entirely different plan that had nothing to do with what they wanted to do three moves ago. And so what I, when I tell my students to storyboard their games, what I'm really telling them is find your opponent's weaknesses and focus on them. If the position stays static and nothing really changes structurally or the pieces, you know, the, their values don't really change within relation to each other, that's probably a sign that you want to continue focusing on your plan if it's you know putting pressure on your opponent. Then know when to switch when those static changes occur and the pawn structures change or maybe pieces get traded. Um, And that will ultimately make you a stronger player. Knowing when to focus on the right plan and then knowing when to switch, those two elements of kind of calculation and chess psychology, I feel like that lays the foundation for anybody under 2000 to move forward uh, and go beyond that. Wow, that's really good advice. I I think that rings true with me. Um, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so what are the stories of your games typically? Um, well, I mean, probably when I was in my junior, senior years, it was something like, you know, develop your pieces, put pressure on your opponent, control the center, oops, blunder, and then lose the game. Right. Uh Um, but more seriously, I mean, you try to find the weak squares and you should already have an idea of what those are based on your opening prep or, uh, maybe your opponent played something that was just wrong and you're finding the refutation or the, you know, the positional kind of counter blow to, you know, make it kind of refute that move. Uh, and that's sticking to that plan, right? So everything should work together. You should always be asking yourself, like, where do your pieces want to go? As Augard says, what's your worst place piece? And how do you make that work together? Um, obviously, the one drawback is if you calculate entirely like that, you'll miss every single tactic known to man. Uh, and so 
knowing that and then also knowing the critical moments to calculate all the forcing lines that you and your opponent have you know that's that's kind of like where that that balance lies but you know i noticed that when i was going over a lot of my games for chess summit that um my opponents maybe aren't the best defenders because we're not grandmasters and so because of that it makes it easier for you to find the different resources if you just stick to your plan and know what you want to do okay Excellent advice. And you mentioned you're going to be playing in the DC Chess League. Um, uh, what else um, do you have? Do you do you have a tournament before then? Now that you're getting settled in, so there's a lot of events at the Arlington Chess Club, which I'm currently consider play, considering playing in because literally right down the street from me, I, it's like 15, 20 minute walk, and you know I can play any Friday that I, any given Friday that I'd like. Um, but ideally I'm preparing for bigger and stronger events like the Washington Chess Congress in October and all of the great Maryland Chess Association events that, you know, happen in the spring. And so, you know, right now I think it's important for me to just focus on getting in the habit of playing tournament chess again. And then as I kind of build up that confidence, go start playing in these open events where I'm really playing against the strongest players, you know, regionally or even in the country. Nice. And are you, uh, you going to pull the trigger and get a car? I feel like that's going to be inevitable, although I'll say that, you know, with the Metro, that's a huge added bonus I just never had in Pittsburgh. Um, So I can actually, you know, if I wanted to go take the Metro and go to a Maryland Chess Association event because it's in Rockville and it's like a 30 minute uh, Metro ride. I don't have to worry about parking, which is something I didn't think about, you know, when I before I moved over to D.C. Uh, But the inevitable answer is, yes, I'll probably have to get a car and actually learn how to drive. Oh, oh, you don't even know how to drive. Okay. I do yeah. have my license, but yeah, I, I yeah. somehow managed to skip the learning how to drive part. Okay. Well, at least you, at least you have the license. <laughs> Be careful out there. Right. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that's that's good to hear. I mean, uh, it, it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with your chess. I mean, uh, I hope I hope you continue to find time to play. Um, you're kind of in the prime years of uh, really being able to, to, to push your pedal, push the pedal to the metal. And I, I assume I would think that working for chess.com, like even if you're the, the majority of your work is going to be like data driven and sort of, as you say, I mean, whether it's macro or micro, it's going to be um, focusing on the business, but still, I think being that, that steeped in chess can't hurt. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, you know, one thing that I think is going to become an asset of working for chess.com uh, you know, as long as my passion is still there, I'm going to always try to play and, you know, move up the ladder. Okay. Well, Isaac, um, have we hit everything, all, all of the major topics? I feel like, I feel like, I think we have. Yeah, I believe we've gone through, you know, everything that, uh, you know, we were thinking about talking about. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm excited for, for a lot of these things to sort of unfold um, from the chess.com angle for the the Fisher Random World Championship and the Pro Chess League and just as a general chess fan of course the World Cup um so yeah th- yeah things should should be interesting and um excited to see uh what what you guys cook up when when the next season comes around for the Pro Chess League I'm really excited as well as both someone who's worked behind the scenes but also someone who'll be you know watching the actual product in 2020 so I'm right there with you Excellent. And um, I know you're active on Twitter, so I will link to that. Um, or is there any other, um, for people to reach you, uh, how else can they reach you or keep up with what you're doing? Um, so Twitter is the best way to keep in touch with me. I have a chess.com account now specifically for my day-to-day work, um, which is just my full name. So if you were to look me up and follow me on chess.com, you'll get all the updates when I you know, post various news articles for the events that I'm working on. So that'll probably be the second best way to keep in touch. 
Excellent. All right. Well, Isaac, um, congratulations on the the new exciting gig. And yeah, we, we look forward to seeing both uh, what you and chess.com uh, bring to the chess masses in, in the coming months and years. Thanks, Ben. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Most of all to my producer, Matthew Passy, but also to everyone who helps spread the word about the show. That can be by telling a friend, by writing a positive statement on Twitter or Facebook or whatever your preferred social media outlet is, by writing a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or another podcast platform. All of that stuff helps. But most of all, I want to thank the people who provide financial support to the show. Without you all, the show would not be possible. So here we go. Thanks to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. I would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities, Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, the Capital City Chess Club, the Apprentice Twitch Channel, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Handelman, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Greg Natel, I am Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jen Scream, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, Kelly Palmer, Lone Pine Chess, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, the Mysterious Moon Master 9000, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant, Todd Kennedy, and I'd like to give thanks to Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howardland, Brett Zeldo, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri. Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zelecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Day's Chess Academy, David Kofer, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of the U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, Evan Sagers, I am Elect Donnie Ariel. Fox Valley Chess Club, Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, James Banastia, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, JJ Stranad, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, GM Josh Fidel, newly minted IM Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Namsova, Kelly Palmer, IM Kostya Kovyutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Larry Reiforth, Laura Beljavsky, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Miguel Araspidi, Mr. Michael Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahava, Rory Yearwood, Ryan Berg, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, WGM Tatia of Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tomas Komanich, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouz, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. I will catch you guys soon.
Social Podcast Network.